name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. It's no secret to anyone in the industry that logging today looks nothing like logging 100 years ago, and there are many reasons for that. Lumbermen from years past would not recognize today's markets, and they wouldn't recognize the equipment. But another aspect of the working forest that would probably shock an early 20th century logger if he were to find himself in today's North Woods is the winter logging season. Gone are the days when the ground froze before Thanksgiving and thawed in May. Today's loggers are lucky if they can get a good freeze between Christmas and St. Patrick's Day. Rather than solid ground, northern loggers face mud, mud, and more mud. And it's no secret to any of these loggers that are working today that the climate is warming. It's warming fast. Carbon emissions over the past century have raised global temperatures at a rapid rate, and 21st century attempts to reduce global emissions have not been successful so far. So the prospect of a quickly changing climate is a staggering one, especially for those who rely on the land to earn their living. As we all know, northern forests are sensitive to temperature changes of even a few degrees, and it causes species to not be able to regenerate, pests to be able to attack trees more easily, cataclysmic storms, all sorts of things that you don't want in a forest ecosystem. And I've heard many of the loggers that I talk to on a regular basis wonder what's going to happen to the working forests by let's say 2100, when the climate in parts of Maine is projected by scientists to more closely resemble the climate of North Carolina. The good news amid all this unsettling news is that foresters are thinking about these issues, and they're not only thinking about them as hypotheticals, but as realities that we're already seeing on the job. Groups like the Northeastern Institute of Applied Science, the Forest Service, the USDA, the Adaptive Silviculture Project for Climate Change have already begun to embrace a handful of what are called climate adaptation strategies, which are meant to help land managers and loggers prepare for an uncertain future. Foresters talk about this range of adaptation strategies in terms of resistance, resilience, and transition. So each of these strategies is a different way of dealing with climate change, and foresters often encourage landowners and land managers to employ aspects of all three when they're making a plan for a forest. So what are these? Well, a resistance strategy for climate adaptation would involve helping the existing species in an area withstand changing conditions. So Basically, that would be like, let's say you have an invasive plant like buckthorn, and every time you see it, you pull it and spray it. So you're working against a significant change in the landscape to sustain the forest as it currently is. Then you have resilience, and resilience is more like maintaining the forest so that it can respond to changes. So let's say you have a pure sugar maple forest, you might want to manage for some other species like yellow birch or white ash, because in that case, you could maintain a closed canopy and have low rates of runoff. So you're trying to work with 
the change to the climate and anticipate impacts, it's kind of like diversifying your investment rather than keeping all of your money in one account. The third approach, which is the transition approach, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, particularly one transition strategy known as assisted migration. The idea behind that is a long-term realignment of a forest site towards a more resilient condition in the future. Let's say that you have a forest that really isn't getting enough rainfall, like a sugar maple forest. You might try to introduce red oak because you know that red oak can survive in that ecosystem. You're shifting the system, still trying to do it in a way that sustains the things that you value, but making pretty significant changes to what the forest looks like. So one of the marquee ideas of transition forestry is the idea of assisted migration. As we all know, tree species migrate north over the course of generations, but it's a slow process and one that is outpaced by the rate of climate change. Many tree species, unable to migrate to suitable climates quickly enough via natural selection, will face extinction as conditions change. So assisted migration is the idea that humans could speed that migration in order to preserve forests. And this idea, probably unsurprisingly, is both controversial and inspiring, and it's attracted some media attention as it's been implemented in sites in the Northeast and the Lake States. We talked to several people about their work with assisted migration, which before we get started, I just want to clarify that there are different kinds of assisted migration. You have assisted range expansion, which is basically moving species that exist in neighboring environments, let's say oak in southern New Hampshire moving up to northern New Hampshire. That's called assisted range expansion. Then you have assisted population migration, which means moving seed sources around within an existing range. So that would be like moving some yellow birch to a different part of the same site. And then you have assisted species migration, which is probably the more controversial idea of the three. And that means moving seed sources far outside of their historical range. So you might move let's say, an Asian version of a tree to North America because the Asian version is more resilient against certain conditions. We talked to Greg Edge, who's a state silviculturist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, uh, about how he's helped implement assisted migration strategies on working lands. He explained that assisted migration is pretty unique. So uh, assisted migration is kind of a unique element of climate adaptation work. It's sort of a popular thing to discuss and debate among scientists and forestry staff because sometimes it can be controversial about moving species to areas where they're not. For obvious reasons, we have lots of problems with invasive species, for example, or which are species where... Uh, that were moved accidentally or purposely to places that they weren't originally. So there's, you know, just a lot of debate and concern about doing that purposely because of climate change. Actually, we've been doing it for centuries or 
many, many years, not in the name of climate change, but we have moved tree seed sources around what we would call provenances in order to get better growth. So tree improvement specialists a long time ago learned if you moved certain species a little further north, they would have a longer growing season and they would sometimes grow more and longer than the native seed sources. And so we we practiced uh, moving those sources a little further north to get that added growth. Of course, if you move them too far north, then they can get damaged. Therefore, their health can be impacted because they might not be adapted to things like uh, late spring frosts, for example. Stephen Handler, who's a climate change specialist with the USDA, also explained assisted migration this way. Often when assisted migration comes up and makes it, makes it into someone's final adaptation plan, usually it's a situation where something about the status quo is broken or not working well or is seriously threatened. By something. And so this em- emerald ash borer is a great example where you've got this, this basically landscape level disaster that's rolling out and either in, you know, in different parts of the lake states, it's already swept through or it's still kind of looming on the horizon. And, and so foresters are faced with this really hard situation that we know a lot of our bottomland hardwoods are going to be facing this intense change. So advocates for assisted migration hold that the practice, especially in working forests that are routinely planted, can be a useful and cost-effective solution to forestry problems. You can help increase genetic diversity, maintain crucial ecosystem functions, lifeboat species that are in critical risk to new areas, and you can also help maintain forest productivity, which is what we care about here at the Northern Logger, because forest productivity means forest jobs, which means that the tradition of logging is preserved for future generations. But assisted migration challenges exist as well, Newly introduced species run the risk of becoming invasive, of hybridizing with local species in a way that you wouldn't want, of introducing pests and diseases into new areas, or just of being unrealistic. Every forest is different, and practicing assisted migration in the naturally regenerating hardwood forests of New England involves very different operational questions than practicing assisted migration in the plantation forests of the lake states. So, in order to get a better sense of where this work is happening right now, we spoke with several foresters that have been implementing this work in the Midwest and the Northeast. Stephen Handler explained more about the work in the Midwest, particularly work on tribal lands. In Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you'll also you'll, you'll often get these lowland stands that are over 50% of black ash. And in Minnesota in particular, they can be quite, quite vast. And so the, the threat is you know, you're losing that, that hydrologic function 
of having tree cover in those areas. At the same time, we're also experiencing a flashier precipitation cycle from climate change. You know, we're getting more of these extreme precipitation events, generally more precipitation throughout the year. So the, the risk is that you'll lose forest on these stands and they'll convert to open wetlands, which really can, can affect the water cycle in a watershed, especially because some of these ash swamps kind of exist at uh, headwaters of some of our watersheds. So, so that's kind of the, the challenge facing people. I think that the Asian ash, as far as I know, that has been tried in one large experiment on the Chippewa National Forest uh, in North Central Minnesota. That's a, that's a location where they're, they're dealing with this situation to a large degree. They have these extensive complexes of black ash EAB has not hit them yet, but they expect it too soon. The Chippewa National Forest is an, just an interesting story in that their ownership is, is laid right on top of or, or highly overlaps the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Their ownership is, is deeply intertwined, and, and they are evolving towards now more of a kind of a collaborative management approach between the national forest and the tribe. And so, yeah, like, like you said, they're, they're facing the loss of the species that is deeply valuable to the, to the tribe and to those community members. So when they were concocting this research experiment, they worked with the tribe and with you know, traditional craftsmen and, and gatherers, knowledge holders, to talk about, well, what are a suite of species that might be interesting and useful to try here? And I, I wasn't involved in this process, but I think they also provided some samples of these species to, uh, to the craft, craftsmen and let them work with them and, and see if they had you know, similar bark properties for the weaving material and, you know, pliability. And, and Manchurian ash was one that they said, well, this might have similar enough characteristics that we think it's worth trying. Another example uh, that, we, that we talk about quite a bit is um, with the Menominee tribe in northern Wisconsin. So they have pretty large reservations, 230 or 250,000 acres. They have had a long history of forest management, even since since that reservation was established. They've been doing long rotation, sustainable and commercial forestry. They were facing a situation uh, recently where they have widespread oak wilt popping up across their reservation, and you know it's widespread in Wisconsin now. Like many large agencies or landowners, you know, the Menominee tribal enterprises were trying to get their hands around this oak wilt explosion on their property. And, and I think they identified over 300 distinct pockets of oak wilt on their reservation. And we, we uh, started talking to them about climate adaptation around the same time. And they basically took the approach of, well, maybe we can use some of our oak wilt response as a situation where we can test some climate adaptation actions that maybe we haven't tried before. 
And so they picked 10 of the largest and most accessible oak wilt pockets. And they said, okay, we're going to use these as a, a subsample, as kind of a test case to try some assisted migration. And so they looked through, you know, rather than, rather than just relying on natural regeneration. So they looked through the information we provided from the, you know, climate change projections for different species. And they, so they were using a couple of things. They were using, well, number one, what are species expected to increase here? that may also be commercially valuable timber species. We're going to continue with our vision of high value saw timber production. And then can we also scan this list for species that would provide valuable resources for other beings in the community, for tribal members? And let's go beyond just trees when we're thinking about assisted migration. Let's also think about some of those, they talk about elder, and younger plants that work together in a system. So let's also talk about some understory, some forbs, some flowers, some shrubs. How can we kind of introduce an assemblage of plants that might harmonize and work together rather than just popping trees in the ground? So they, they, they added some kind of depth and, and layers into this assisted migration picture that were really, really interesting. Maria Janowiak, who works with the Forest Service, worked with Providence Water, a utility, to make their climate change adaptation plan. Yeah, so at Providence Water, they had a site where it was, you know, poor droughty soils. They had had some drought. They'd had some insect pests. I think it was, oh, maybe two-line chestnut borer. Anyway, they they had an overstory failure. They didn't get the regeneration that they wanted. And all of a sudden you had what was oak forest. Um, all of a sudden was really struggling and kind of transitioning towards this, you know, barren situation. And so they wanted to to really plant that site um, to make sure that they could get it back to forest so that they were protecting the water quality. And so they decided that they wanted to look at what other species would be available. And so they used the Climate Change Tree Atlas, which is a, a tool we use. We work really closely with the, science, the scientists um, at our NIAX team who developed that. And they looked at what tree species are projected to do well in the future under climate change and how which species have traits that would be a good match to their particular site and their management objectives. And they identified a handful of species to plant, including some of those that they ended up sourcing from a nursery, I believe in Maryland, because New Jersey couldn't go in and out of state lines. And so they had to go all the way to Maryland for their plants. Um, and they planted there in terms of more of like a a small-scale sort of experimental management sort of way. And finally, Brian Pallack, a forest ecologist in the Northern Lake States, spoke about how this work requires loggers and a strong logging infrastructure to have the potential to even be possible. Our approach to this is that we can't do this in un 
unlogged, un, unmanaged, and unharvested forests. These projects all involve working forests where we need to create conditions that are you know, better suited for the tree species that we're investigating. So they'll involve harvest and logging. And so it's a, you know, a source of revenue and a source of, of work for, for loggers. And so, you know, obviously everybody's good with that. And, um, and then what we, and we do have these conversations. So you're right on that, that we always in our projects, we have uh, get togethers in the field with the, whoever's been, whoever got the contract to log and this pine forest one was just absolutely huge. So it was a huge effort of, of logging, of harvesting. And so what we try to do um, is talk about our long-term objective is to keep forests on the landscape. I mean, there's people in this part of the Midwest that had this doom and gloom story researchers about this becoming grassland to prairie. And, you know, so our goal is to keep, um, forests on the ground and on the landscape doing the things that people want in terms of providing source of timber, recreation, you know, water quality, quantity control, et cetera, habitat for wildlife species. And it may be that 20 to 100 years from now, that forest looks different, but it's still a forest. So it might be different tree species, but it's still a forest. And that's our goal is to figure out how to keep forests on the ground, including as a source of, of timber production, which obviously then is the platform that that loggers need to um, do what they do. And they're all, everyone we've worked with is really receptive to that. You know, it, as long as there's a place that they can sell that wood, uh, which, you know, is, is an issue with changing species and what the market supports. But but over the long term, um, our goal is to keep forests on the ground, to provide things that that people want out of them, including timber. And so the loggers that have worked on our big projects um, are already they're all, all very interested in this. They know that things are happening. In fact, you might this might not surprise you. This did surprise me. Um, so we live in a you know forest based economy up here in northern Minnesota and occasionally I'll teach classes at some of the regional colleges or or just like give guest lectures on this topic of forest and climate change and and I'll ask I always ask this of these undergraduate classes how many of you come from a logging family you know and five or six people raise their hand because in the community college here that's the people coming to school here and, and I say what do you think about this and I've had every one of these kids or young adults or whatever tell me this oh we get it you know my dad knows this is already happening and, and we got to figure it out so i've had my experience is that um the logging community gets this and it's not uh, as controversial um with them as you as i would have thought because they see it they see that their growing season or their harvesting season in the winter is shortening you know they the there's no, less snow cover in some cases, or there's less ground freezing, and and those are things that directly impact, um, you know, those people. And so, anyhow, the point is that I have found loggers to be a really receptive audience, and we kind of frame it around. We're trying to figure out how to keep, you know, forests on the ground, and allow people to keep doing what they're doing with these forests, that they're all receptive to it. 